I think we all know the pedigree of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology when it comes to bird resources, and we at the ABA are excited to partner with the Cornell Lab of O to offer an amazing deal exclusive to ABA members. ABA members can now get a 15% discount to any new subscription to Cornell's amazing new Birds of the World resource that is applicable for three years. Birds of the World is a powerful resource that brings deep scholarly content from four celebrated works of ornithology into a single platform where birders can answer all their life history questions for every species of bird they could want. It is extraordinary. You can get more information at birdsoftheworld.org. Well, and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm your host, Nate Swick. Did you ever wonder why field guides to the birds of the United States and Canada always style themselves as guides for the birds of North America, despite omitting perhaps a third of the actual continent of North America and probably almost two thirds of North America's birds? That was a question posed on Twitter the other day by birder and artist Walter Catundo, and it's one that I've always thought was a little weird, but I never really had any inclination to go down the rabbit hole as to why it is. Though it is a topic of conversation here at the ABA internally, uh, Michael Redder, you, you may know him. He's been a guest on the podcast a couple times. He is the editor of uh, the ABA's Birders Guide publications. He is a huge advocate for noting that North America is not equivalent to the ABA area, and they should not be used interchangeably. Uh, North America, obviously the landmass that runs from Canada and Alaska in the north all the way down to Panama in the south. It might include the Caribbean, might include Greenland, depending on which geographer you're talking to. Definitely does not include Hawaii, does not include Bermuda as well. That is, of course, with the caveat that continents on the whole are completely arbitrary. I'm looking at you, Europe, quote unquote. Geologically, this makes sense, though. The connection of North and South America at the Isthmus of Panama was a significant moment in biogeography. South America was kind of floating on its own for several million years, evolving weird critters. And when the continents kind of came crashing together, it was a moment called the Great American Biotic Interchange. That's a tangent I will not go down now, but it is a really cool moment in Earth's history. It's part of the reason why South America is the bird continent. I encourage you to look it up. You will be amazed. The ABA area is an arbitrary boundary that when the organization started in 1969, it was not really well defined. And so it was a, a big topic of discussion in the early days of the ABA. So I went back to the archives, now newly available online to members, all of the magazines, and I read some of the inaugural issues of Birding Magazine in those first few years. And what I found was that this super arbitrary decision to draw the line at the Mexico border was probably mostly listing related. It, it wasn't because birders didn't regularly go to Mexico or appreciate Mexican birds because they did. Uh, Roger Torrey Peterson published a guide to the birds of Mexico in 1973. There were a bunch of bird finding guides to Mexico at the time. Trip reports regularly published in early birding magazines to Mexico and you know further on through Central America, South America, and the Caribbean. You know, Baja in particular was well known to birders in the 60s and 70s because it was part of the American Ornithologists Union area, which was then expanded to all of North America later on. Uh, my guess, and I'm sort of reading between the lines a little bit here, is that if the ABA area included Mexico, the idea was that there would be too many birds. The U.S. and Canada, minus Hawaii, at the time had something like 850-odd species of birds, 
which felt both like a number that was impressive, but also not overwhelming. And, you know, adding Mexico more than doubles that list. Now, this was the 70s. And if you told me that there was some anti-Mexico bias, I would probably believe you. But I think the goal was to sort of find that sweet spot where a big list required some effort, but wasn't so difficult that no one could reach it. Essentially, this was a club, remember, that prioritized the game of birding to a large degree. Your 600 club membership is a little less impressive when you can make a trip to Oaxaca and add like 300 species in a week. I did find a letter to the editor in Birding Magazine from 1973 on this issue from Jim Tucker, the first ABA president, asking why do we call this area North America, taking it as obvious that North America includes Mexico and Central America too. So they were wrestling with this idea, and obviously the term ABA area is what came out of it. And when the first ABA checklist came out in 1975, it was called the Checklist to the Birds of Continental United States and Canada, not checklist to the birds of North America. So they acknowledged that North America is much larger than the ABA area. Interestingly, that announcement was immediately met by calls for an ABA Mexico and ABA Central America checklist. Obviously, there was great interest in visiting and birding those places too. But the faulty idea that North America was just the US and Canada was not started by the ABA, as far as I can tell. I think it was first presented in field guides. Not Roger Torrey Peterson, whose field guide in 1934 was essentially the first real comprehensive field-worthy book of its type. That book was just called A Field Guide to the Birds and didn't add Eastern and Central North America until the fourth edition published in 1980. He also wrote A Field Guide to Western Birds in 1941 that likewise became the Birds of Western North America later on, which is even more egregious because Western North America includes pretty much all of Mexico, but I digress. So I think it was actually Chandler Robbins, or perhaps more accurately, the publisher's Golden Guides, who called their guide, published in 1966, Birds of North America. Funnily enough, Chandler Robbins was the first chair of the ABA Checklist Committee, the same committee that created the Checklist of Birds of the Continental United States and Canada. So maybe he's correcting his mistake. I don't know. After that, the Audubon Photo Guys used North America and then National Geographic and Sibley. I suspect, though, that this will probably be changing. I have it on good authority that future National Geographic guides will be to the U.S. and Canada, and that includes Hawaii, notably. Uh, I would suspect that if one does it, they all will. This whole idea of ABA area versus North America feels something like a historical accident more than anything. So that is the result of my efforts to solve this mystery. I'm interested to hear if anyone else has any other insight. You can find me at podcast.aba.org if so. On to the show this week, we've been talking about the ABA's oldest publication. Let's fast forward to its newest. The Fledgling is produced for young birders by young birders. I am joined by a couple of them, Hannes Leonard and Adriana Nelson. We talk about the new publication, obviously, but a lot about young birder community and young birder needs. All that after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the end of July, beginning of August 2022. It is Alaska again, and once more, it is a bird from the south instead of the west. A Lucy's warbler was photographed this week near Fairbanks, a pretty extraordinary record of this little southwestern warbler. Interestingly enough, there's a pattern of vagrancy for this species with extra limital records from Washington and British Columbia. Even so, central Alaska is quite a leap. This is the third southern species in two weeks for the last frontier. If they keep adding southern species at this rate, they might challenge California for the highest bird list. 
Nothing else in terms of firsts, but a couple interesting seconds to note, both in line with this season of vagrant shorebirds and waders. New Hampshire's second little stint was well photographed in coastal Rockingham County, and Nevada boasts its second record of tricolored heron in Clark County, almost certainly a post-breeding wanderer from the Gulf of California. That is all I have for you this week, just as well. The intro was very long, but for a full accounting, check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org slash RBA. You can also follow along with all the Rare Bird news in our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook. Close observers of the ABA might remember when we launched a new publication aimed at young birders and notably completely produced by a team of teen birders from all over the ABA area. The Fledgling has put out two issues now. They are free online for readers. I am joined by two members of that team, Hannes Leonard and Adriana Nelson, to talk about this publication and the needs of young birders more generally. Hi, Hannes. Hi, Adriana. Um, how are you? Hi, Nate. I'm good. Thanks for having me. Hey, doing good. Thanks for having me, too. Looking forward to it. Super. Um, so look, before we get going, where, where are you guys located? Uh, I'm currently in St. Petersburg, Florida, but cool. I move around a lot. So. Yeah, and I'm uh, currently on a trip right now to Morganton, North Carolina, but I've been living in Boone, North Carolina for, for a few years. Oh, I, I, I thought that looked like a hotel room behind you, actually. I was going to say. It is. <laughs> it is. <laughs> like, wow, your room looks like a hotel room. How, what, how, how nice. I did that um, on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> um, so can you talk just a little bit uh, as we get started here um, about how the fledgling came to be? Um. Sure. So the fledgling was started by William Young, who unfortunately had to, to step away from production for at least a while. But it was sort of spawned out of the Young Birder Mentoring Program, which was then the Young Birder Contest. Um, and we took a group of people, which actually in the beginning didn't include me, and came up with the idea to create a magazine for young birders by young birders, which was mm -hmm. sort of a, a niche that hadn't been filled yet. And how did you come into it, uh, Adriana? Yeah, so I was not part of the, the founding people for mm -hmm. Fledgling, but I saw that they needed people to contribute articles or illustrations or photos. And so I got in on that ASAP. That sounded yeah. so cool. And yeah, so I offered to add... Um, I believe an illustration in one article to their first issue. You said that they're all sort of teen birders from the ABA's Young Birder of the Year mentoring program. Did you know each other before you were involved in the Young Birding program, or did you meet each other sort of virtually, I guess, uh, through the Young Birder of the Year program? I met most people virtually through the program. There were a couple people involved who I'd, I'd known previously. Hmm. And same for me, too. I, for the most part, everybody I met was virtually through that program on Slack. But there were yeah. a couple people on there who were kind of local. Uh, so I already knew them prior, but most everybody else was new through Slack. How, how recently were you guys involved in the Young Bird of the Year program? Not all that long ago, right? Uh, it's been two years for me. Two years. Yeah, I did it the year right before COVID. So I think the yeah, same year as you, Adrian. Yeah, so that was that was kind of what I'm leading to. So, like, the pandemic is obviously this huge part of the fledgling story, and also sort of your own sort of young birding story. So, Slack must have been a little bit of a, I don't know, like a godsend, I imagine, like being able to stay in contact with people when everything around you is so cloistered and and kind of kept kept close together, kept close to home. 
Yeah. So for me, Slack was really great because I had never really used any kind of online platform to Mm -hmm. communicate with other young birders just because technology is generally not my thing and I don't <laughs> I don't have much social media. So I, I started to use Slack really heavily. It was nice being able to communicate with other people doing the Young Birder program. And so whenever COVID hit, it was kind of nice that that was already in place and it was already kind of consistent. And uh, I was able to use that to, instead of start communicating with Young Birders, mm-hmm. to keep communicating with other right. Young Birders. So it was nice that that was already in place and um, remains remains so throughout COVID. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that was big for me as well. I moved to the UK uh, just a couple months before the COVID lockdowns really started, which is not the best way to meet people. In case no, you were wondering, not at all. <laughs> um, so that was really nice for me to be able to have this great community of young birders that I could talk with and. It's, it's just great when young birders get together, amazing things happen. Yeah, for sure. You know, I, I think back to my own sort of history as a, as a young birder, which was a long time ago and sort of pre, pre-social media. And a lot of my own experience as a young birder was as the only young person in my local club, my local bird club. And it, it, it's hard because it's nice to have that sort of social facilitation you know with other young people essentially who are interested in birding and not that they're not that the club wasn't full of mentors and amazing people who helped me on my birding journey but having someone your own age to sort of interact with is such an important part of feeling like you're not uh you're not alone do you interact with young birders in your regular social circles or is it primarily an online sort of thing for you guys Yeah, so I try as much as possible to interact with young birders. And I feel like that scenario is really similar to me too. Uh, Where I'm from, I was like one of two young birders and I didn't even discover this young birder until I was about to leave for college. So (laughs) it was me and all the other members of our bird club who definitely skewed towards the older end of the age spectrum. Um, So yeah, I... Since I got to college, I've met a few other young birders, and so they definitely make up a big part of my social group just because we go out so often and have such yeah. similar interests. Um, so yeah, I try as much as I can, but I do love those online platforms like Slack too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say I haven't as much recently since I've just moved, but mm-hmm. I was really fortunate um, to spend kind of my early young birder years in Maryland where there's a very active yeah, yeah. youth birding nice group, there. which was... Uh, instrumental in, in me growing as a birder and as yeah. a person, but especially as a birder. Yeah. I, I feel like we're jumping ahead of ourselves. I do want to get back to talk about the magazine too. Um, let's, let's talk a little bit about the content that you can find in each of the, each of the issues. Like what kind of, what kind of things can, can readers expect to see in, in the fledgling? Well, we, the, the main uniting factor is just that it's all young birder content, but we've had some really amazing uh, young birders come up with, cool ideas. We've had um, some travel articles, which are my favorite, but mm-hmm. also some stories about local patches and um, species profiles, what you would expect to see in a, a normal, any other birding magazine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the sort of most interesting things that you could find in there um, that I think is is sort of novel is this idea of the the mentor's corner, the idea where, yes, the whole magazine is effectively written, produced, edited, all that stuff by by a team of younger birders, but there's the one article in each in each issue that is from someone who is you know perhaps well known in the birding community. 
Um, how did how did that idea come to be? And how do you go about searching for people to to fill that role? And note, I'm not angling for a spot in that role. I'm just curious. Yeah. I wasn't actually involved um, when that idea was hatched. I came in sort of after that was started. Mm -hmm. um, but that is, I think that's a really important column because it, it gives some advice and sort of gives back to, to young birders. And we've been really lucky to be able to get some, some excellent birders. Scott White and Saul wrote our first mm -hmm. mentors corner. So I think that that is just helpful and, and important for the magazine moving forward. In looking for a mentors corner, we do look for someone who is somewhat well-known, but uh, especially with experience, maybe working with young birders and who has something to, to offer young birders. So what is it like producing this, this publication from the ground up with a team of, of young birders? It's been a really amazing challenge. Um, especially because it's produced by young birders, we're all volunteers and everyone has mm. school and birding and sports and other activities that they are fitting in along with the magazine. So that's created a, a unique kind of challenge that wouldn't be found in a more adult magazine. Yeah. But that's also made it really rewarding to see how everyone's been able to come together and help people out and maybe not just in their areas, but cross over and just come together as a team to make sure it gets out. And like I said before, even though I haven't been super involved with actually producing the magazine, like behind the scenes kind of work to get it going, just being able to watch it come together. I mean, mm -hmm. I see them uh, constantly trying to engage with other young birders, especially on Slack and get that, um, get the information needed to complete a magazine issue and it's really cool just seeing how it all came together really quickly and it turned out really incredibly well yeah, i think it's it, very nice i think it looks great so from looking from the outside in i thought i think it's been great and being able to at least contribute a little bit to it even though i wasn't the one doing the behind the scenes work has been a lot of fun yeah is there anything that you have learned uh in your time uh working that that surprised you I don't know anything that surprised me per se, but the just the amount of talent that young birders have is For sure. is not surprising, but it's always always kind of amazing when you to be reminded of it. And so especially because I, I edit the articles and but I don't do the layout and so I send off the, the text and the photos mm -hmm. and then it comes back and it, it just looks amazing and that's always a really fun to flip through the, the first kind of rough draft once it's all been put together. You are both uh, veterans, I guess, of the Young Birder programs, both from the ABA and from other organizations and, and tour companies. Um, how have those programs benefited you as a birder, as a person? So I think as a birder, those kinds of programs have been really very helpful for me just because it exposes me to other people and their interests. So mm -hmm. that encourages me to get into those interests and learn new things that I might have not known before. Um, it encourages me to communicate with people in other areas. And I have um, interacted in person. I've been really grateful enough to be able to meet people like Hannes. 
in person because of these programs. So I think mm-hmm. that helps, helps me personally, just because I get to meet new friends virtually and in person uh, and travel new places to meet, meet these folks. And um, so it's helped me sharpen my birding, birding skills a little bit, just learning things from other people online, but also getting to meet new friends in person and encouraging me to, to learn new things and even travel a little bit. Yeah, start, starting out as a birder, I definitely, there was a major spike in how much I knew about birding and how interested I was after I met other young birders. That, that definitely gave me a, a nudge to kind of really take the deep dive into birding. Yeah. Do you feel like you are more aware of sort of the broad range of, of potential, I don't know, I want to say career tracks. You're, you're young enough that you're not, don't really have to worry about that too much, but you've, you've obviously thought about perhaps ways in which an interest in birding can, can manifest in, in some sort of job down the, down the road. Um, have you been surprised at how broad those jobs are? Cause one of the things that, that is amazing to me when I was a young birder, you think, oh, okay, if I'm into bird watching, I'm going to go into wildlife. Right. I'm going to go to go to college and study, study wildlife or whatever. But, you know, you don't necessarily have to. There are so many cool angles <laughs> to keep birds in your life uh, in a way that is meaningful down the road. And uh, it's always surprised me the ways in which people have have made birding, I don't know, the centerpiece of their, their identity, of, the, of their career, of their life in ways that you wouldn't necessarily expect. I don't know if you've found a similar sort of thing. Yeah, so I definitely have noticed that over the years and not necessarily through young birder networks, but mm-hmm. over over time I've definitely come across ideas to keep birding in my life in kind of weird ways that wouldn't necessarily yeah. seem like a typical career path and I think wow, that's so creative and what a what a great idea and uh I think that's constantly I I'm constantly reminded of that when I do interact with other young birders like just mm-hmm. on Slack, people share their artwork and um, trips and ideas that they have all the time with birds and it's just like I said a constant reminder that there's a lot of really cool ways that you can keep birding in your life so yeah yeah the more the more I bird and the more I talk to people the more I see that there are a lot of creative ways to um, integrate birding with lots of uh, hobbies other hobbies and career choices for sure mm-hmm. yeah definitely that's I, I I was similar to you I think Nate when I was starting out birding is, oh you're a birder so you go into ornithology. Yeah, there's only, there's only one path. Yeah, that, that is the path. Um, but as I've met more, not necessarily young birders, but maybe younger birders, mm-hmm. um, that's been, it's amazing how how broad people, you know, we have artists or authors or even people like, um, I'm going to mispronounce his last name, Peter Kaysner, who was the, mm-hmm. the diplomat. Who, yeah, right. That is fascinating career choice that you wouldn't associate with birds at all but in the end he's all over the place yeah you think about it's like oh yeah you get stationed everywhere yeah and you get to spend a lot of time in those places and like just bird the heck out of them like he like he does yeah really cool so i get i get asked this question all the time and i never know exactly how to answer it so i'm gonna i'm gonna throw it at you um you know about how bird organizations can better appeal to young people. And, and I, it, it feels like sort of random. It, it depends on the organization. It depends on the young person uh, that you're trying to reach. Um, there's no one good way, at least in my mind, of reaching out to young people if you, if you want to. Um, but I, I do want to ask you, you know, what has worked for you and what has been meaningful for you 
that an organization, a local club, a national organization, any of those things have done to make you feel like you are part of the birding community, that you have room to grow into the birding community? I don't know that there is. I would agree with you. I don't think there's one right answer. Mm -hmm. For me, I really grew as a birder by meeting other young birders. And so I think creating, whether that's young birder trips or however that works, that can be really valuable for connecting young birders, which I think is really important. And I agree with that too. There's no cookie cutter way to get people involved. Um, But really interacting with other folks made it meaningful to me, I think. Uh, I mean, it's already great interacting with people of any age group. Yeah. But especially when I got to college and I started meeting more people in my own age group, we had similar schedules and Mm -hmm. um, similar energy levels and (laughs) uh, things, ideas that we wanted to do. And it's fun to be able to do those together. We were able to encourage each other to do them and that kind of thing. And the other thing that I think helped me Um, So there's a park at home that has a really great nature center that allowed me to kind of uh, fill into my own projects, start my own projects and work Mm -hmm. on them in the park, kind of my own independent work. And so things like that and something, uh, something along those lines, I think is really nice. And I think the ABA does a great job with that, with their young birder mentoring program, because Mm -hmm. you can sign up for it and then like take take it your own way and go your yeah. own direction doing your own projects. And so that felt really fulfilling to me because I felt like I was contributing, but I got to have some independent work and creative work on my own. So those kinds of outlets where you can work independently or with other people and also do it creatively are really nice. Have you ever had an experience with a birder, I don't know, like a more experienced birder I'm trying to go around the way of saying an older birder, but I guess that's sort of what I'm getting at. The, the, when a lot of people look at the birding community, they see people that maybe look like their parents, right? There, it's definitely, there's definitely a lot of older, retired people in the birding community, and, and uh, you know, makes sense. You know, People are retiring, and they're looking for something to do to fill their time, and birding is an amazing way to do that, especially if you've always had an interest in nature. Um, but one of the things that I've found amazing over the last decade or so is that there are more and more and more young people coming into the birding community and making a real difference, or, or I should say, having a real influence on the priorities of the birding community, the um, you know where where our energy should be should be aimed. You know, do you see more young people coming in to the birding community and making they're making a name for themselves? I mean, you know, the fledgling is such a great example of of that happening and for, and a vehicle for that to happen as well. How how is the birding how has the birding community changed in your time in the in birding I suppose is a short way of saying that. <laughs> well, there's de- there are definitely a lot more young birders now than uh, there no were doubt. even no doubt. ten yeah. years ago, and that I think that's a really positive thing, and I think that's partly because there are more young birders than other young people who might be inclined to to be birders, or it's not quite as isolating as yeah. maybe it once was. I, th- I think that's true. Yeah. I have definitely seen it change over time. And especially like just in the past few years, even uh, there's been a lot of change. And I have two examples of that. And one is with ABA's birding magazine. Just I was flipping through one of the issues a couple months ago and like half the contributors were young birders. It's, it's true. Yeah. yeah. Under yeah. 20. 
And I was really impressed. I couldn't believe how many were contributing really amazing articles and work to this nationwide publication. Mm-hmm. And uh, the other example I have is at my school. So I just graduated in May from Appalachian State University and Go Mountaineers. a handful, just a handful <laughs> of, <laughs> of years ago, we got a, we started a chapter of the Audubon Society. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I was a freshman, sometimes it would be me and my friend at meetings. It would just be two of us. Yeah. Horribly awkward. I hate, I hate it. It was painful. <laughs> just two of us there at a meeting. Yeah, and then a dorm this room. Year, yeah. yeah, this year we have about a hundred people now in our mailing wow. list. So yeah, just over the course of a few years, we've exponentially increased our membership. Are and- they people coming to it with the specific interest in birds or are they people coming to it with an interest in the outdoors and birds are just a great way to kind of manifest that interest? So I think it's more the second one. I think mm-hmm. people are more generally interested in being outside in nature and learning generally about nature or wildlife yeah. or conservation uh, or sustainability and are interested in birds, but maybe aren't necessarily birders. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah. I have definitely seen more birders lately in the past couple of years as well with everybody else who are just bird watchers or interested yeah. in birds on the side. So so you were in college during the pandemic. Yes. Do you think that changed anything? Do you think people came back to school ready to find a community of people who are interested in nature because they did not have that community for the last two odd year and a half, two years? Yeah, I definitely <laughs> think so. I definitely <laughs> think so. Yeah, that was rough. College plus COVID is not. I can't imagine. I can't imagine. I had yeah. one normal semester. That's <laughs> wild. Um, yeah, but yeah, I think I think that definitely influenced people getting out and bird watching for sure. Because when people got sent home, I got sent home my first year because of COVID, and so mm-hmm. I just sat in my parents' house doing online classes. And so I think when people came back, they really wanted to get involved in something and maybe mm-hmm. something outdoors that. Yeah they perceived as being a little safer. Um, so I think that definitely had a big influence. And I know when I was home sitting on my computer doing online classes, I was looking out the window constantly at birds. So I think that got some people interested too. They just had a lot of time on their hands at home, yeah. noticed some birds. And when they came back, they said, oh, there's other people like that at school. So I think that's might be part of the reason why we had so many after COVID. Yeah. I mean, there it does feel like there's something going on. It I does feel so. like there's a movement there and yeah yeah well, people I, people put up feeders and that's the the classic trap yeah exactly yep yeah it's true i i mean i've had i hear from people all the time about this podcast uh how they discovered it during during the pandemic and um they are covid birders um now you, you pull them in and oh you know it's the same with uh, the magazine uh, any sort of you know media outlet you've got there, it's always all of these things are such great tools to kind of rope people in easily, and you know with a low level of commitment, and then you know how it is. Once you got them, yeah, it's then, hard. It's hard not to go all the way in. Yeah, you have to go all the way in. <laughs> you can't shake the obsession. That's right. That's right. You know, it really is an obsession. It's Once definitely in, an obsession. Yep, it's an addiction. <laughs> yeah. What have you got looking forward? Uh, at the fledgling, you have any exciting things planned? Do you have any articles that you're particularly, particularly, um, you know, satisfied with, gratified with? Um, what what can we look forward to? 
We're currently on a biannual publication schedule. So mm -hmm. our next issue will be out in December, which we're still still putting it together. But we have some exciting articles lined up with um, some young birders who do bird research and also um, some articles about young birder camps and other young bird mm -hmm. opportunities. Did y'all do young birder camps? I did. You yes. both did? Yeah. Did you, Adrian? Not. I actually just got back um, last week from Camp Chiricahua. So. That's funny. I was I was at Camp Chiricahua in 1994. <laughs> so, yeah, who knew? Who knew? Camp Chiricahua as a high schooler, and then uh, you know, talking to talking to birders all day. Uh, as a much older yes. person. It's all um, downhill from there. It's all downhill. That was the <laughs> highlight. That was as good as it gets. <laughs> what was your best thing you saw? What did you, What was most exciting? Uh, we did manage to see the pine flycatcher, which was oh, very exciting. I was wondering if you made the effort to do it. Yeah. We did. We made a, it took a lot of effort. It was not cooperative for us. Oh, oh but wow. We we saw white-eared hummingbird at Miller Canyon. Oh, those was, are so cool. Yeah. That was really exciting. Yeah. Did you uh, rope any of the young birders that you were at Camp Chiricahua with into the fledgling? Did you Did you bring them into the fold? I hope so. We have a couple of people who were interested in writing articles. So hopefully that will pan out either if not in this next issue sometime next year. Thank you so much. Uh, Hannes Leonard, Adriana Nelson, uh, both young birders who have uh, helped to put together the fledgling, the ABA's newest publication. You can find the fledgling on the ABA website. I will have a link in the show notes. You can check that out. Please, please do. If you are a young birder yourself and you are interested in perhaps creating some content, for the fledgling, I, I know how con the content monster is. You are always looking for stuff to put out. I'm sure Hannes would be glad to hear from you. Definitely. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I really appreciate talking to you. Good luck going forward. I hope you, uh, everybody stays in touch. All the young birders are, are staying in touch on the Slack and uh, everywhere else and uh, doing some really cool stuff. Thanks to both of you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast, you can support it by supporting the ABA with your membership. There are many benefits like magazines, all the magazines, the new ones and the old ones, discounts to our partners, opportunities to travel with us. You can get more information at aba.org slash join. I have a special shout out to make this week to Kylie Wilson of Sarasota, Florida. Kylie joined the ABA and noted the podcast as the reason for doing so. Thank you so much, Kylie, and welcome to the ABA. If you want to help out without joining, you can always leave a positive rating or review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We certainly appreciate those as well. Executive Director of the ABA and Executive Producer of the podcast is Nikki Belmonte, who notes that to the Australian Breastfeeding Association, the ABA area refers to a private space where a nursing mother can use a breast pump. Technical production is by John Lowry, who points out to the Arabian Breeders Association, the ABA area refers to horse pens only in Qatar or the UAE. Definitely not... Kuwait, maybe Oman. Additional help comes from David Hartley and Greg Neese, who are pretty sure that to the American Bicycle Association, the ABA area is the 10-foot wide lane that road builders are required to put alongside major thoroughfares for two-wheel vehicle traffic. You can find us online at aba.org, on social media, most everywhere as American Birding Association. On Twitter, we are at ABA. We object to the outrageous suggestion that the ABA area refers to the space immediately in front of the judge's dais and ask for the suggestion to be thrown out and your honor to declare a misrail. Questions, comments, come to podcast at ABA.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy, everybody. See you next week.